My name is Ed Keenan, Edward Keenan. I'm a columnist at the Toronto Star. I write about the city, city issues, uh, often city politics, but often neighborhoods and culture, sometimes police and crime or whatever. Uh, and so, so that's my gig. I'm also a coach of three uh, minor hockey teams because I have three kids. Okay, yeah. Uh, I coach a girls' baseball team in the summer. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I used to be uh, a host Sunday nights on News Talk 1010. I still do panels there regularly. Yeah. Uh, so I've, d- I've done some broadcasting as well. But uh, City Columnist at the Star is my main gig. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Nice. Do you like the broadcasting thing? I love it. Yeah. Nice. I, I love radio uh, as a medium in particular because I, I'm a radio listener when I'm in my car. Uh, okay. And then occasionally at home, although with three kids running around and all of that, I, I have hear. less time to myself where I turn on the radio to be in the background. But um, I like the idea when I'm in the studio. Yeah. And I, Sunday nights was, a, was an interesting time because... Uh, you know the the news churn has died down. You don't have as many guests in. You're mm. often just alone in a room, just talking to talking to a, a microphone. And yeah. yet, you know there are thousands of people out there who are listening, and sometimes they can call in. Yeah. Um. So, so there's something about that that I that I really like. Um. But I also like the immediacy of it. Um. Mm. I mean, I, I like podcasts too. I like listening yeah. to them, and and you can do good storytelling, mm-hmm. have good interviews. But uh, so, something about people use the radio to kill time. And so when you're on the radio talking to people live, uh, yeah. uh, whether whether often you have them calling in mm-hmm. uh, or you, you are commenting on the news that just happened, like whatever the case is, it, there's this immediacy to it. It's it's happening now. We're sort of spending time together, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I dated this woman in university, Heather McCall, uh, who, who used to say, because I... I t- made her mixtapes or whatever and then she sure. said you know mostly i like to listen to the radio i love listening to music on the radio because even if i don't like the song i just know there are like all these other people out there experiencing at the same time as me it's like we're all jamming at the same time yeah. to the same song um and i mean again it's kind of a weird romantic idea but but i feel a bit of that energy when i'm on the radio when mm. i'm doing radio and I, I really love it for that um and you know i just like talking if sure. it's not already obvious. So. <laughs> we, I think we come from that generation. I don't know if, if you did the same thing. I remember uh, my parents had this really interesting bed where at the head of the bed was a stereo system built in there. So on, on many a Sunday, I could be found getting one of these blank cassettes that yeah. you, you get from Byway or Hargan Bear, uh, Bargain Herald, sorry, yeah. um, and sticking it in it and putting it on. You know, Chum FM or CFTR back in the day when they were top four. Trying to record those songs. Yeah, and yeah. And, and the DJ would, would speak right up until. Yeah, and there's know. the guy. Here's the hot jam from the city by the lake. Yeah, and you're Chum yeah. F, Chum FM or whatever. And yeah. and so you you lose all the instrumental at, at introduction, the right? Yeah. Or at the end where <laughs> you know it has a really nice ending, and the DJ would come on. Yeah. Right before the song ended, the whole go, fade ah! out's there, and you've lost it. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And yet, that was those were my mixtapes back yeah, then, right? Yeah. Like that's back uh, back in those days too. I would buy vinyl records wow. or cassette tapes yeah, from yeah. Uh, from you know the department store or the Sunrise Records or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but for the most part, it's like it, it's the equivalent of st- streaming or listening to Spotify. Spotify isn't it? Yeah. Is that you you record these tapes? Yeah. Of all your favorite hit songs, and yeah. then if you really loved it, you go out and buy it, right? Yeah, but oh, absolutely. But you'd always have 
I, I had one tape that was like in high rotation because I just constantly record over it. So it's oh, like okay. every week it had my favorite songs on it. Okay. And I'd sit there at the top six at six on yeah, yeah, yeah. CFTR That's or right. whatever, yeah. waiting for that song to come on yeah. and just praying the DJ would shut up. I know. <laughs> just stop talking. I want to play this. Those are the fun times. It's <laughs> they the my yeah they. they no movies now will have I'm making you a mixtape. That's that's not a thing anymore, is it? Yeah, no, no. And I mean, even those mixed CDs that people made after that, I, even the iTunes era, sure. you, you would burn a CD with your favorite MP3s on it, and you could give yeah. people lists that way. But that's, that's right. really dying out. I mean, I don't remember the last time I played a CD except no. in, a, in a car. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, so that's and the other thing I love about radio, actually, mm -hmm. just as a job, as a thing to do yeah. uh, for work. Um, is that it? Talk radio, in particular, is related to what I do as a journalist, right? You're often talking about the same, sure, same news issues, stories, yeah. and I think uh, when I took the gig at News Talk 1010, it was partly sort of my record and expertise about writing about city issues yeah. uh, that sort of qualified me for that. So all that research I've done comes right in handy because mm -hmm. you're talking about something. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm used to as a journalist, you sort of. You do some research, you write something, then it goes out into the world, and then there's this days-long period where people are reacting to you, either mm -hmm. sending emails or uh, responding on Twitter or whatever. And weeks and months later, that's it's still sort of out there. People are still bringing it up. People are yep. still referring to it. And there's something liberating about doing live talk radio where you sort of you do your preparation you come in hours early you read up on the stories okay. you're going to discuss the topics you're going to discuss you yeah. you uh your producer and you will like find guests and prepare a little bit to interview those guests but yeah. at the same time you go on you're on for three hours mm -hmm. talking yeah and at the end of the show you go home and it's and it's sort of it's done. It's done. There's it's no over. editor who calls you later to say, "Hey, let's redo that." Change this. Yeah, change, change this or that, and and the reactions you get are inst spontaneous, instantaneous. So it's in a way, it's like it's like a live theater in that respect. That it's yeah. it's happening now, and once it's over, you can kind of <sighs> and move on, breathe yeah. and move on, and you do another one it's later. It's a different or whatever, muscle, though, isn't it? Yeah. Though, no, know, it is. Speaking. Yeah. You know, I've I've done a few of these panels, mm -hmm. uh, and I think you and I were on one. Oh, together. Oh yeah, we were on one together. Yeah. that's right. And uh, it's so it's such a different muscle. I I mean, I can do this, and I can do all the ums and ahs and pauses that I want to do, but when you only have that fifteen minutes, and there's four of you in there, and the host has asked you a question, or you need to respond in fifteen seconds in the thirty second <laughs> soundbite. Well, that those uh, roundtable panels that, hard, that on more in the morning on News Talk ten ten, and there yeah. are similar formats on other radio stations. Sure, but that yeah. one in particular, it's a fifteen minute segment, which after the traffic and the introductions and all of that, winds yeah. up being more like a thirteen minute segment. Yeah. And there's four panelists, and typically you'll discuss between four and eight news stories, right? And yeah. And everybody or almost everybody comments on each one. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really rapid fire thing, more yeah. so even than, than other segments that you might do. Yeah. It's really sort of like, here's the topic, what's your take? Okay, too slow, I, what's your take? I know, right? it's, yeah. it's, it's so hard. And I remember the first couple of times I would leave that and I could just feel my heart beating at 100 miles an hour. And I go, I don't know if that's healthy for me to be in that room. And and you have to know exactly what to say and which words to use. And I said, wow, this is tough. Well, and part of it is is getting used to, too, the other adjustment of that kind of thing is yeah. getting used to uh, 
a confrontational attitude yes. sometimes being just part of the yeah it's not like it's show business it's not like people don't believe what they say yeah but it is that that disagreement is actually part of the premise if all four people on the panel think the same thing yeah uh it's a then it's panel. boring panel yeah. right so so you kind of cut each other off you rebut each other you 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 openly disagree right and i think most of us have a human instinct to try and find the common ground mm. whereas it's fine to acknowledge the common ground, but but when you're doing a, a segment like that, where the the whole point is to get some different perspectives on something, you gotta immediately jump to the differences of opinion, yeah. right? And yeah. highlight those. And it's yeah. it's again, it's a muscle that you gotta develop over That's time. So true. That's so true. Because well, you also don't want to seem like a jerk. <laughs> exactly. And and there was one time where I where I, I I had to go on Twitter later that day and go, are these guys talking about me? Because <laughs> one one of the one of the guests there definitely said that I was a jerk. Oh well, there you go. But anyways, but they invited me back a few more times, so so yeah. They, they Obviously, still... they meant it in a good way. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get into journalism? Uh, well, I mean, I've been okay. So in the high school, yeah. I loved writing, okay. right? Um, fiction. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, I guess the ambition was and still is to some extent uh, to to be a novelist as well, okay. right? Um, yeah, yeah. But Around that time, I also was reading a lot of uh, magazines like Rolling Stone magazine sure. and Esquire magazine, where where the writing was something that that the editors and really prized. And and my dad started giving me these books of Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson, like wow. collected essays and stuff. Mm. And I really fell in love with nonfiction as well. So there was a point though where I talked to a guidance counselor at my school and said, "I'm thinking of journalism school, or I'm thinking of going and just doing an arts degree." Yeah. And he said. You know, if, if you want to be a writer, if you want to be a journalist, you might as well just go to journalism school, right? Mm. Like, and my other consideration was that that it was a way to get paid for writing. Sure. Um, that that lots of novelists and fiction writers or screenwriters, what have you, mm-hmm. uh, earn a really good living at that. Uh, lots yeah. don't, but lots do. Yeah. Um, but there's no entry level jobs there, right? No. The, the way you get into the novelist business is you write a novel <laughs> in your spare time or whatever, yeah. and then you go out and try and sell it. And if it's popular, then then somebody will buy your next novel. Then you've too. got something. Yeah. But I mean, even when you sell your first novel, typically, I mean, you you could win the lottery uh, if if an agent loves it or something. Yeah, yeah. But typically, too, you might get, you know, you've spent two years working on this thing, and then they give you a five thousand dollar advance, right? Yeah. And in Canada, you're lucky if you earn that back in a year, <laughs> wow. uh, and start making more money. So it's like it's a longer game, and yeah. certainly more so at that time than now. Because we're talking about the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were jobs in journalism and you could Absolutely. get a job yeah, and yeah. write for a living. Yeah. Um, and and I didn't, though, immediately get a job. I actually wound up dropping out of journalism school. Okay. Uh, where'd, you go for, where'd you go to school? I went to Ryerson. Okay. Yeah, I've lived in Toronto all my life. Okay. I've never lived in any other cities. Yeah. Uh, but I went to Ryerson for journalism school and I left after three years uh partly because i couldn't afford uh Mm. to go anymore and i was really unsophisticated i i I could have obviously gotten a bank loan but i didn't realize that i didn't qualify for osap loans and my parents didn't have any money to give me my dad had recently lost his job Mm. and i didn't have any money so there was this desperate crunch of trying to figure out how to pay for it and also a frustration feeling like i had already learned what i was going to learn there Ah. and crossing the finish line was just about getting the diploma which yeah actually would have been really helpful in getting a job but um and then and then also there was uh my grandfather died while i was in third year and i stopped going to a lot of classes and i had failed some classes i would have had to repeat those as well so it was like this combination of things where actually through my own uh laziness Mm -hmm. or 
slash depression in, for a certain chunk of time I had done poorly and would have had to repeat uh, mm. a chunk of the, the stuff. Um, not feeling like it was worth the investment of time and money and uh, not having access to any money that I, that I knew of, yeah. uh, that I just left there. And, and what I thought I would do was like try and hustle up and find a job or freelance. Sure. Um, and I, so you still I did a little bit of that. I got a job immediately or soon close to immediately uh, at, a, at a trade magazine that was okay. independently owned called the Environmental Waste Reporter. It was actually called Waste Business Magazine when I was hired and then right. we rebranded. It was a waste management industry trade magazine. Okay. So it was like uh, bioremediation techniques and, uh, you know, nuclear cleanup sites and stuff like that. Um, anyhow, I, I was there for like a year and it it folded, but it, it actually was bought by these scam artists who then defaulted it. There's a whole story attached to that, wow. but it's it's pretty long. So, so then the result is that then I spent like well over 10 years not working as a writer or journalist of any description. I, oh, okay. I... Then in my early 20s, it was the worst recession since the Great Depression, of course, the mm. only time where youth unemployment was higher than it has been in the last few years, yeah. um, the mid-90s. I had a hard time finding any job after that for a long time. So wow. I picked up work uh, where I could. I was an office administrator. Yeah. I, I did this and that. Sure. Uh, then I wound up uh, getting involved in owning a restaurant with my brother and my aunt, uh, she had bought it and was really struggling, so my brother and I borrowed some money mm. uh, and invested in her restaurant and sort of took over managing it for a while. Yeah. Uh, we were not particularly successful as restaurateurs, so we sold that restaurant, but I got hired as a short-order cook by the people who bought it from us. Yeah. Uh, and then I worked as a cook for a few years. Uh, were you writing on the side at all? Were you uh, I, was, I was writing poetry a lot okay. and going out to poetry open mic nights yeah. and reading it and making chat books. Uh, I was writing fiction. I got a okay. Toronto Arts Council grant at that point and wrote right. um, uh, a novel, a couple drafts of a novel okay. that it remains unpublished and will likely remain unpublished. Okay. I think now it's uh, it was a learning experience to sure. write it. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not particularly proud of the work or happy okay. with it, the work, how it turned out. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Um, so I was doing all of that as a sideline wow. the whole time. Yeah. Um, but there was a point. So then, you know, through the restaurant business, I met my wife. Okay. Uh, she was a waitress. I was a cook. We sure. hooked up. We, we spent some time together. And I was 29 years old, I think, when we got married. Yeah. And it was at that point. She was still a full-time student. Oh, uh, wow, okay. And, but at that point, point um, I realized, like, well, I'm a cook. And I've been a cook for a few years, and I'm yeah. getting promoted through the ranks of sure. cooks. But I never wanted to be a cook, and I don't like really enjoy this work. There yeah. was some rewarding elements about being a cook. You have yeah. these fast deadlines. There can be a lot of camaraderie in the kitchen or in the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. uh, you, there's something about feeding people that okay. can actually make you happy too, right. and and learning the process of making the food and actually watching it transform from raw ingredients into something that's beautiful and delicious. Um, well, I worked originally in a short order restaurant. Then I worked at Tarot Grill on Queen Street West. So it was like, um, you know, casual uh, continental cuisine. Mm -hmm. It was like the the fusion that was trendy at the time. Sure. So you know, you'd have a seared tuna with uh, wasabi mayo on the side, and yeah. and you know, some sort of. We we were doing like a combination of French, Italian, kind of like continental cool. European yeah. cuisines, but. Um, but, but I mean, just cooking in general, there, there's something rewarding uh, mm. about 
taking a bunch of raw ingredients and turning it into something that can be nice to look at and also be beautiful uh, to eat, like like taste delicious. And then, and then you're like you're filling people's bellies, right? Like they walk out fed. And yeah. there's something almost like this is something traditionally families do for each huh. other. They cook for each other, right? Yeah. So, so there were elements of it that I liked, but it's mm. also it's a tough business, right? Yeah. Um, and so, anyhow, at that point, I decided. I, this is not what I wanted to do with my life, and my wife said, "You're right. Wow. Why yeah. don't Why don't you go and do what you wanted to do?" So, yeah. um, so I started trying to freelance, and I took a an unpaid internship at iWeekly, which was yes. uh, a competitor to Now Magazine at the time. Um, and and at the end of that internship, they offered me a job as a staff writer, okay. and. Uh, and then from there I became an editor and it, that actually was owned by Torstar. And so I've mm. been with the company ever since then. And okay. it's been, uh, since 2002. So go. we're coming up on 15 years. Wow. Yeah. What did you, do you remember your first piece for iWeekly? Boy, oh boy. I don't know if I remember what my very first piece was. I mean, one of my earliest pieces was that I wrote, I, I wrote a piece about, um, <sighs> Let's see. Okay, I, I don't remember which was first, but my first sort of news story that I reported for them, I went to City Hall mm -hmm. to write... Actually, I went to Evangel Hall to write about uh, an affordable housing program that was taking too long to get started. So I went to this homeless shelter, this this okay. agency, John nonprofit agency, to talk to them about how they were trying to build a new homeless shelter with money that they had been... What year is this? This is 2002. Okay. Um. Uh, so, so writing about homelessness there, and then I also mm. started to go to cover, like, there was a garbage incineration debate going on at that point. We wound up buying a landfill in the election in 2006, mm. I think. Uh, uh, there, and then, um, and then I was reporting on the island airport back then as well. Wow. Um, uh, for the arts section, though, I think what might have been my first piece yeah. was, was about Sheila Hetty's Trampoline Hall series, which is still running. Uh, but was brand new at the time. Sheila Hetty and Misha Gluberman had launched it, and it was like a, a lecture series then at the Cameron House where people uh, talked about uh, subjects that they are not experts on. So they would give lectures oh, wow. about topics they're not that they know expert about. on. Yeah. Not, I mean, a lot of them would do research, but okay. it might be like, you find out like you'd have somebody would be talking about dry humping, right? <laughs> but then the next person would be talking about the celiacanth, and then somebody else would be, like a, a novelist or a playwright, would yeah. then be talking about the number 36 and why it's fascinating in so many ways. And <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, that, that was fun. So those were the first pieces I wrote. Um, and then I, I got this big scoop by accident. I, oh. I interviewed this artist named Rocky Daryl Doby who had a, a show coming up or something at 401 Richmond. And I went to visit him, and then it came out through the interview that he had been this... Uh, he had been doing these public art pieces all around the city, these sculptures that had for a while been, uh, s people were trying to figure out who did them, oh. like who, who, who had made them. Who and, this and this was in the 80s that there was like this Toronto Life and the Toronto Star were all like, who, who is this guy who, who's Rocky who did this stuff, right? Okay. And, and so then I was able to reveal, yeah. it was him, it was Rocky <laughs> Daryl Doby. So I interviewed him about that. But so, you know, that's going back a ways there now. Wow. But, uh, but those were the original sort of pieces, and, and you've 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 covered Toronto ever since it seems. I have, yeah. I've been mostly writing about the city, and I've written at times about arts, and uh, at times about uh, 
you know, books, and I've written, you know, essays on all kinds of topics and, and whatnot, but the city is really, it's my home, but it's also my main subject. Yeah. Um, one of the things that that you covered earlier on, you, you said, was the homeless. Yeah. Uh, the homeless shelter back in 2002, and it's almost full circle, or maybe you've seen it every year. It's, it, mm. the, the, I don't know if it comes up or not. You would know more than I, but... Um, you know, this currently right now, um, you know, we've experienced a very cold winter, uh, especially over the holidays. Um, and this debate came up again about what do we how do we shelter all these homeless people? And, and it became a very hot and emotional issue. Um, why are we still grappling with this problem in Toronto? Well, because we never really grapple with it. Right. I mean, I think. Um I, I think affordable housing and homelessness are big, really hard issues, right? Yeah. But sheltering uh, the number of homeless people we have <clears throat> is not as hard. Not as hard in the sense that it's, okay. com uh, it's complicated, right? How okay. to figure out how to, how to make housing affordable across the city to working people and, and working class people um, is, is a tricky okay. issue in the sense that nobody really knows what the solution is, right? Like you can build social housing, which is very expensive, um, or, you know, you can increase the supply of market housing, but like real estate prices keep going up, right? Yes. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people wind up homeless. Uh, partly that ha those have to do with poverty, the, the price of housing, but there are other yep. issues and there are different groups of homeless people. There are um, long-term homeless people. Mm -hmm. uh, there are there's a, uh, I was going to say a transient population, but what I mean is people who move into homelessness because they've lost a job or their girlfriend has kicked them out or or they've fled an abusive situation and they, they don't have a home and they need temporary support, mm -hmm. uh, but they may otherwise be employed or employable. Uh, okay. Otherwise, you know, so there's lots of different, these are tricky, complicated issues, mm -hmm. right? But if what we're talking about is people are going to freeze on the street yeah, because they need a bed tonight. Yeah. They need a place to sleep. Mm -hmm. to come in from the cold, right? Yeah. That's less complicated. What you need to do is set up shelters yeah. uh, that are cleaned and safe yeah. and have uh, reasonable accommodations. And, yeah. and what's considered reasonable in the homeless shelter business is, is something most people would not consider reasonable at all, right? Um, like a, a wide-open gymnasium with a bunch of cots in it. It's not a luxury accommodation by any means. Of it's course. not no place nobody would want to be. Yeah. But... Um, and yet, you know, very few of us want one of those in our neighborhood. And at the same mm -hmm. time, very few of us want to spend a lot of money to have more homeless shelters than we need. Um, and, and so, you know, back when they first opened the armories under Mel Lastman, they first put in the call to the, to the federal government and said, you know, what we need... It's a cold winter. We need the armories, space in the armies to temporarily house the homeless. Everybody said at that point, um, we've got to find a long-term solution to this problem. Right? John Moore on News Talk 1010 pointed this out, but it's yeah. absolutely true. I've gone up and looked up the clips, and it's, it's like, first of all, we need, we need more supportive uh, transitional housing that we can move homeless people into so that they have a home and that they can get actually stabilized and... Mm -hmm. and get their lives together in, in a sense where they no longer require a homeless shelter. Yeah. Um, and then we need more affordable housing so that people who 
might otherwise be pushed into homelessness, they can actually don't face that situation. They have an apartment, they have a place to stay, whether it's a market rent place that they can afford, um, whether it's a rooming house, whether it's a a subsidized apartment owned by the government, right? Yeah. Uh, We need more of those places, right? Mm -hmm. And, And we need the social supports to help move people who are on the street into, you know, all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And those are long-term things, but also in the short term, in the immediate emergency room sense, yeah. we need to not react when it gets cold by suddenly realizing, oh my God, people space. are freezing on the streets and we don't have space for them, right? Yeah. And it's been 20 years and we're still having that, we're still surprised every year or every two years when there's a particularly cold snap that that we need this space. And... You know, uh, there were people at city council who brought forward a proposal um, that, that that was hatched with uh, homeless activists like uh, Kathy Crow, who's a street nurse who's been working forever uh, with with uh, homeless people uh, to say, you know, like, let's open the armories and then let's open 1,000 more permanent beds. You know, so there's an immediate term solution. Mm-hmm. There's a medium term solution. And then the affordable housing, the social support is the bigger part of it, right? And... And, you know, and initially, a majority of city council, including the mayor, said, no, 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 we have a different, we're going to go with a different plan. We're going to open 400 beds. We're going to use city-owned things. And then this really cold snap happened. And just as predicted, um, you know, we needed the armory space. So, again, we're surprised by it. But, yeah. I mean, th- this is a really long answer, and I don't know if I've come closer to answering your question, but the short answer to your initial question yeah. is that, like, we... We haven't dealt with it in all this time because we haven't decided we really want to deal with it, right? Like when we actually are confronted with minus 30 temperatures and we realize, oh my gosh, people are sleeping in this. Then we say, yes, open everything up. Yes, let's spend the money. But in the summertime, when it's time to plan for next winter, we don't say, okay, this building at the end of our street that's vacant, we're going to turn that into a homeless shelter and putting a, a th- all the neighbors say, no, 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 not. You don't understand. Not in our backyard. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a NIMBY, but mm. not in my backyard, please. Yeah. And, and everybody else is like, well, that requires such and such a tax increase. And it's like, ah, well, I want to keep taxes low. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And then what, what winds up happening is that we panic every time. I'm curious. Do you think that's true, Ed? You know, you know we always say that... Um, you know, not in my backyard. No, I don't want to pay more taxes. Yeah. Um, and we hear that from politicians. Um, we hear that from uh, radio hosts. Um, maybe I'm not listening, mm-hmm. but I've never heard, quote unquote, a private individual, private citizen, say, um, I don't want my taxes raised to house homeless people at minus 30. Yeah, it it very seldom becomes that direct a thing, right? Like the people who oppose tax increases uh, are are often the same people who are convinced that they're that the government's wasting a lot of money already, right? And they think, okay, first of all, don't raise taxes because they'll just waste more of it, right? They won't actually solve the problems. Mm. Uh, but in the meantime, if you need more homeless shelters, you know, move your money out of all the fat cat waste you've got, right? Um, and that's actually difficult. Like, I, I mean, 
Rob Ford was mayor here for four years. John Tory's been mayor for almost four years. They've all been hunting down waste. Uh, yeah. And they and they do find efficiencies, right? They do find things that where where they can make money stretch further. But it's not easy to figure out exactly where how, how to find how to make government more efficient and make it work better. A lot of the money we seem to waste goes to accountability, right? Like all the bureaucracy and paperwork is basically there to make sure that they're not wasting we money. Waste money. <laughs> yeah. Uh I mean I mean there, there's this epic procurement process at City Hall. Like so if if they want to you know, hey, let's put some great new benches on on street corners and they'll really be really cheap and really easy, but then you got to go through a 2 years long process to like yeah. to just find vendors and that's the reason we have that 2 years long process of comparative bids and our proposals and all of that stuff is because of the MFP scandal where the city got That's ripped right. off because of a sole source computer leasing thing, yeah. right? So so now we've created massive levels of bureaucracy to make sure we're not getting ripped off. But yeah. as a result of that, that that's expensive. That costs money as well. And I mean, the thing is, is that you and I and everybody else, and I think this is an... I, I understand this about the sort of... The guy at the bar stool who says government's just wasting all our money and taxes are too Fair high enough. is that what I understand about it is that we've all seen those like four man one shovel shovel jobs like yeah. like you're walking down the street and you see how somehow they've got too many people for the work that needs to be done or what yeah. have you right and yet when you're when you're often there's a reason for that first of all um, but yeah. second of all uh, it's not Whenever Rob Ford or somebody proposes making cuts, what we wind up debating is like closing libraries and swimming pools and mm-hmm. and homeless shelters. We don't wind up talking about how we're gonna do the jobs better and more efficiently, no. right? So, true. So that's that's part one. But the other thing is that I think the the nimbyism of not wanting the homeless shelter in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I I have seen it firsthand. I've seen it in community meetings in Scarborough, in mm. my own neighborhood, in the Junction. Uh, across the city, whenever I go out to a community meeting where a homeless shelter is proposed, almost without exception, you have a room full of people who are angry or concerned. And and I think it's an almost universal impulse, uh, not to be afraid of homeless people per se, but I think, okay, first of all, the people who are most afraid or most concerned, most angry, those are the people who are going to be loudest, right? The people who of don't course. care, yeah. don't care, sure. right? Yeah. Uh, but secondly, I think, you know, nimbyism, everybody hates nimbyism until they, they realize that something's being proposed in their backyard. And I yeah. think there's a, a universal impulse to feel like y- the things you like, your neighborhood, your family situation, this is special, right? This is unique. You don't want to change. And a condo at the end of your block is somehow different than a condo at the end of somebody else's block, right? Mm-hmm. The particular characteristics of your neighborhood are going to be uh, ruined, yeah. By this thing that you, th- in general, we need more of this. But in the specific case, like, don't you understand that you're literally going to put this thing in my backyard? And it's like, well, yeah, but <laughs> you, you really literally understand that that's what not in my backyard means, right? That, yeah. that, that NIMBY, um, th- <laughs> because people are always saying that to me. They send me emails and say, I'm not a NIMBY, but, but not they're putting <laughs> in my backyard, right? Like, um, you don't understand. Yeah. In my backyard, you know, or just next door. And I mean, I think. Let's say in the case of the junction, uh, I w- you know they propose to turn a, a former Goodwill site. They're, they are going to do it. They are doing it. They they propose to turn a former Goodwill site into a 
uh, homeless shelter of 50 beds, I think, or maybe the original proposal was 100 beds. Um, and it's it's on the corner of Runnymede and Riding Avenue, and so it's like a side street. So George Bellarina is there, and there's okay. a massive park beside it mm -hmm. uh, where there's a children's baseball diamond, children's soccer leagues play there. There's two playgrounds. Uh, and... And so, and then there's a bunch of little houses on this side street. And so, basically, the the entrance, so what will be a homeless shelter, is is located really most of it on the side street, right? Right at the corner of the major street, but mm -hmm. on the side street. And and the I think entirely understandable concern if you spent uh, time uh, near uh, n near Seton House, say downtown. If you go around, you know, Sherburn and Dundas, mm -hmm. for instance. Sure, sure. Um, you, you say, okay, well, outside the homeless shelter, what do you see? You find a lot of people panhandling, uh, a lot of people sometimes sleeping on the streets, hanging out, waiting for beds to open. Uh, you know, if you go to Allen Gardens, the park, you know. So suddenly this, these people who all have lived in this neighborhood for a long time and their kids go play in that playground by themselves unsupervised across the street. Uh, their, their kids' sports team has a practice there once a week or whatever. Now it's going to be a, a park full of homeless men during the day, right? This is their concern, right? Mm -hmm. And and many of those people have issues like addiction issues and, sure. and whatnot. Is this going to be suddenly like a needle park? Is this going to bring other problems? Uh, are we going to be suddenly worried about thefts? Um, yeah. Because, I mean, by by almost by definition, homeless people don't have any money. Mm -hmm. They, you know. Um, and I think those are legitimate concerns, Uh now, mostly the city often has answers for those, right? Not every homeless shelter is the kind of place where people are going to show up every night and line up outside the door. A lot mm -hmm. of them, you know, are sort of transitional or supportive housing. Um, a, a lot of them have measures uh, to try and be open all the time so that, that you don't have people hanging around outside. And th I mean, so they try to mitigate it. But I mean, there's a bigger question, which is that if if those problems are coming to my neighborhood because because those problems exist in the city and we're not dealing with them, then, then my neighborhood has to be part of the solution too, mm. right? Like, and, and my kids, I, I coach t-ball practices in the park across the street from where that shelter is going to be. So I yeah. understand the concerns of the parents, but I also really believe, um, if, if we believe this is a problem, and I do, yeah. we have to be part, part of the of solution, the solution yeah. right? And, and so, and we're not special, right? <laughs> like, uh, is, and I don't believe, I, I don't want to be, a special neighborhood in the sense that we just keep poor people out of it, yeah. right? Like that, no, well, who wants to be that yeah. neighborhood, mm. right? There are already, um, when I moved to the junction, I originally lived in Dundas Street and there were street walking prostitutes out in front of my house the first night I had an infant, right? Oh, uh, wow. A guy got beaten with a baseball bat across the street again that first night. I went, <laughs> wow, where did I bring my infant son? We moved to this new neighborhood. Um, but, it, but it's a neighborhood that, that has a lot of different characteristics and it traditionally has had a, a, a diff different income levels yeah. and, and try to live together and generally been a great place to live. Uh, and I, and I, I think like, like a lot of neighborhoods, like you want to keep that, right? You gotta, yeah. you gotta have the good and the bad and, and solve these problems together. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, Which it's not unique. Thing, right? It's a, it's all over the place, but I bring up my particular example because it's, it's a place where the people I know and like who yeah. would who would raise their eyebrows when somebody in another part of town says not not in my backyard when it's actually Are proposed in your backyard thing. you start to see okay 
Well, well, these are the concerns, right? Yeah. And now is it's time to decide, am I going to live up to the to this bar I'm trying to set for everybody else, right? Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. So, sorry, I we no, that ramble was off topic, but yeah. Another issue we grapple with in this city, of course, is transit. Yeah, uh, and, <laughs> we sure do. And and we're here on, on King Street where there's not supposed to be any cars or few car fewer cars. Right. Um, and I think things have changed. And like we're allowed parking now. I'm not really sure. You know what is allowed or what is not allowed, but. You know, we have this King Streetcar. The King Peep Streetcar Pilot Project. Yeah, still yeah. a pilot project. We have the ongoing debate about the Scarborough subway. Mm-hmm. Um, we, Eglinton Crosstown. We just opened up a bunch of new stations in the, the northwest Spadina part of the... expansion, yeah. Um, we got a lot of issues moving people from where they live to where they work to where they want to play in all of these things. Um, and we seem to want everything, but not want to pay for everything. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Uh, and, and I think the two biggest issues facing the city, and one we were just sort of touching on is affordable housing, and yeah. the other is transit, right? It's mm-hmm. not just transit, it's, it's transportation in general. Of course. But um, I have come to believe after years about writing about this, and there are some people you can't convince, but mm-hmm. um, if we're talking about fixing our transportation problems in this city, we're talking about transit. We're not talking about uh, fixing roads because they can't be fixed. Um, yeah. it, for, for instance, if we were to build a new expressway coming into downtown from Scarborough, within 10 years, that expressway would be full, right? When you build wider roads, they fill right up. Yes. Every, uh, every time. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So you can't solve... And, and plus, the more roads you build, the wider roads you build coming into downtown just means more cars are getting into of downtown course. and then they jam up against each other. Yeah. Um, the issue we've had, say, here on King Street where we're talking with yeah. the, that required this pilot is that, like, you can't make King Street wider. Like, the buildings are built here. The sidewalks are only the sidewalks are already so crowded that, that at busy times people are, you know, almost pushed onto the street. Like, yeah. well, you can't that. make them narrower. They're, they're only eight feet wide, right? Six yep. feet wide. And so... Uh, there's no more room on the on the road, so you got to figure out how do we carry more people on the existing road, and the way we do that is bigger vehicles like public transit, and yes. and so I think that the King Street ta- pilot project has worked really well in a lot of respects. It's uh, streetcars are moving much quicker, much yep. more reliably. Um, th- there have been some complaints from business owners; they're being dealt with. I I've written about a lot of, of that. By the time people are listening to this, who knows? There will be whole new chapters in the, the like, King Street Pilot Project story. But, yeah, yeah. but, and we can come back to that if you want. But I did want to talk about transit in general. Is like the the really difficult problems, and and they're really expensive to solve. And I think this is the frustrating thing about the ongoing Scarborough subway debate is that it's not. I mean, that Scarborough RT that exists has to be replaced. It's at the end of its useful life, right? So the question is, do we use state-of-the-art brand-new LRT technology, uh, which we could build seven new stops for $1.7, maybe $2.5 billion, right? Yeah. Or do we replace it with a a single-stop subway extension? So eliminate all of the existing RT stops and and for $3.5 billion, right? Because those are the two options we've been talking about. And $3.5 billion is a lot of money. Yes. And it's the the idea, uh, those of us who have long said it's a wasteful idea, is that like you might actually serve people better if you had more stops on an LRT line. But mm-hmm. beyond that, if you if you built that for two billion dollars, you still have a billion and a dollar, billion and a half dollars left 
to build something else, right? Something else in Scarborough, the Shepherd LRT or the sure. Eglinton East LRT that we're talking about building, right? Um, th there are so many needs that that and so few dollars committed right now uh, that that we need to build as much as we can as quickly as we can. We have and, to, yeah. And uh, that said, we're actually, I mean, the fact that the Spadina subway extension opened and. Uh, is is a sign that as much as we talk about nothing ever happening in transit in the city, <laughs> things do happen, things right? Yeah. That that project was approved under David Miller. He yeah. wasn't actually a big supporter of it. It was like accepting that sp that that Spadina subway extension was the price of of getting the province to pay for Transit City, right? Yeah. Um, and now where's that? Now the Eglinton Crosstown is going to be, uh, it's 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 being built, right? So yeah. if nothing else of Transit City ever gets built, and they've they've gone out to procurement for How the Finch West start? LRT. How did that start? Hold on. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, they've gone out to procurement yeah. for the Finch West LRT, so yeah. it, it's you know going to be under construction soon too. Yeah. Um, but the Eglinton Crosstown will get built. And the Eglinton Crosstown is like the largest transit project in fifty years. It's it's as big as the the almost as big, not quite as big, but almost as big as the the bluer subway line right it's tunneled underground for much of its length it's it's supposed to uh get you from kennedy subway station in scarborough to uh young street uh, on eglinton in 35 minutes which is about as fast as the subway sure. makes that trip right it, yeah. it will be a great transit line if it's at all what it's cracked up to be yeah. and it's actually going to be built or opened in the early 2020s right so that too yeah i mean that was a major undertaking the province paid for all of that yeah. but $8 billion, I think, or something something like that. I'd have to go back and look it up. I used sure. to write about it a lot, but yeah. since it's now actually like... It's happening, it's happening. The, the hole's been too big to <laughs> fill back in. Yeah. Uh, everybody forgets about it, right? But that that's like the one of the largest infrastructure projects in Canada in the last several decades, yeah. right? Um, uh, and also, I mean, I think uh, to give John Tory some credit, a, a small amount of credit, I think he made yeah. a big mistake with okay. the... With the Scarborough subway extension. I think he made a big mistake with the Gardner Expressway rebuilding on the east side. Uh, yeah. Let's not get into those yet unless you want to get back to it. But, but you know, he, he, the, he got the province and they've kick-started actual planning for the downtown relief line, which would be a, oh. a, is a much-needed subway line. Um, and they've, they've got the Eglinton East LRT back, uh, which, which would go out to... Uh, Almost not quite to Malvern, but to U U of T Scarborough along uh, Eglinton in the East End, and that I think that would be more. That's that's actually going to be more useful to to people in Scarborough. In my experience, as somebody who lived in Scarborough for fifteen years, mm -hmm. uh, it it has the potential to be a much more useful line than than almost anything else they're talking about out there, um, because it will go all the way along Eglinton out out into you know central scarborough at least yeah. but parts of scarborough that haven't been served by fast transit at sure, all sure. right you know out kingston galloway like like they need uh access to relatively decent it takes forever fast to get transit, anywhere if you don't right? have a car out there. and if you can extend that up to malvern yeah. which is the sort of phase two plan too i mean it's it's about time and it's relatively inexpensive and it will have like 17 stops so i mean this stuff's back on the agenda and yeah. and the at least the the early stage planning, the the detailed design of some of these projects, including mm -hmm. the the downtown relief line, including the Eglinton East LRT, are actually underway, which is like real progress, right? These, yeah. We were talking about like costs a hundred million dollars to like, you know, come up with the real plans. Yeah. But we're spending that hundred million dollars now, Good. right? So, 
So there's a chance that in the next 15, 20 years, these things might actually get built, right? When your kids are ready to go to yeah. UFT Scarborough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they might they might get to ride on it. Um, I mean, that said, like, we, we do relitigate a lot of these things. And, I mean, part of the reason why we get into these trade-offs is that, like, transit is radically expensive to build, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> it takes a long time, and it's very expensive, and the payoff happens over over decades, right? Yeah. Over generations. So, so I mean, I'd love to see more money put into this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also, it's not, it's not simple to come up with these money because when we're talking about like tens of billions of dollars, right? For the, the province's sort of big grand regional plan, like it was like a $50 billion plan, right? Uh, and the cities don't, don't have access that like a city can't raise that kind of money no. you need the province and you need really the federal government to kick in too because like the income tax over a broad area you know can really generate big pieces of revenue mm. whereas at the city i mean serving the debt on 50 billion dollars of debt i mean we'd be talking about just just for that like we'd be talking about a 25 percent 30 percent 40 percent residential property tax increase right mm. Many other cities, like New York City and Chicago, have municipal income taxes. They have municipal sales taxes. Um, they have road tolls. Uh, uh, we don't have any of those things, right? The city depends on a very few uh, taxes to generate all of its money. And I think in the longer term, we really need to talk about giving the city of Toronto more power and certainly more power to raise money uh, or maybe the region of the greater Toronto area. Mm, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in favor... Uh, to, to maybe blue sky a little bit, I'm in favor of like a tr province of Toronto. I just don't think the rest mm. of the province or the federal government will go for it. But yeah. I think, I mean, we're at a stage where the city's grown so large. If you look at the greater Toronto area, we're at 6 million people. Yeah. And, and, and that's more people than all the Atlantic provinces combined. That's more people than most provinces. Like, yeah. uh, and... And it's a large area and a diverse economy, and it has very different needs than much of the rest of the province. And and and, and we don't have the the kind of tools to govern ourselves that we really need, mm -hmm. including being able to properly raise money for these kinds of things. So, yeah. you know, it's not. It's never going to be a live issue. Every couple of years, I write a column about these <laughs> topics, and uh, and they often they generate a lot of debate. But but it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, but you know, maybe maybe we're starting to get there yeah. with transit. So my understanding was there was this thing called the Toronto Act that allowed the city to raise its own, like to implement taxes and stuff. City of Toronto Act uh, did give the city. Uh, gave the city some special powers to govern itself in many different ways that help streamline and reorganize governance quite a bit. Okay. Uh, but one of the things was that it, it gave it uh, some new taxing tools, right? One of those was the municipal land transfer tax. Uh, okay. And another was the vehicle registration tax. So David mm -hmm. Miller implemented both of those. Uh, of course, Rob Ford's very first act in office was to reveal the vehicle registration tax was yeah. $60 a year, right? Yeah. Um, and it generated about $30 million. So it's yeah. like, uh, you know, on a $15 billion budget or $10 billion budget, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not, $30 million is a lot of money, sure. right? But it's not, 
uh, life-changing amount of money. It's not building new transit lines or mm. anything like that. But it was something, right? Could help um, with the shelter. And the issue. idea is that you kind of diversify, right? Yeah. Like the municipal land transfer tax has been a monster cash cow for the city. Yeah. Um, uh, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and it it's a very useful tax, but the the problem with it from the city's perspective. And now there's a problem with it from the people who pay pays it perspective. Of course, yeah. But that let's not let's leave that aside for a yeah, minute. Yeah. From the city's perspective of wanting money, um, mm-hmm. the only problem with it is that if the real estate market crashes, it it drops dramatically very quickly, right? Yeah. Uh, and because it, because it's tied to sales, uh, it's like the number of sales and the size of the sale of the are sale. both dictating it. So even if the market slows down, like the volume slows down, but prices hold, the city's still going to be in trouble, yeah. right? Um, Especially when it's being relying on it, right? The thing is that if you have a, ver- let's say you work and and part of your income is commissions, right? Yeah. If 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 your base salary pays your rent, yeah, you're okay. When your commissions go down, you go on a diet a little bit, right? Yeah. But if you're you if you need all of the commissions you're collecting just to pay your rent. Then if sales slow down at the place where you're whatever you're selling, yeah. right? You're suddenly in a position where you can't pay your rent, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's it's similar with the land transfer tax, where we we've money? started counting on mm. like hundreds, seven or eight hundred, nine hundred million dollars a year from this, and we're using it to fund uh, like real core things, right? Like like a transit subsidy or like uh, affordable housing or like you know like keeping the pools and the libraries open, right? Keeping the lights on, right? Yeah. So so if we're suddenly I mean, when we talk about nine hundred million dollars, say, that's I wrote a column about it and I don't have the things at my fingertips, but I remember the the total of the municipal land transfer tax is like the entire fire department, the entire wow. uh paramedic department. Yeah. And you'd still have like uh the community center budget on top of that. Like like to try and cut the municipal land transfer tax, you'd have to just shut down you those three departments, those, yeah. right? I mean, and obviously you wouldn't shut down those three departments, but like that's the, that's the, the size, size of, of money we're talking about, right? So true. It's not a frill. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, ideally you want you want a bunch of different taxes. Now, what what it also said in the city of Toronto at, was that the mayor could. Uh, or the city council could yeah. um, implement road tolls with the permission of the province. Uh, ah. The province has, uh, when, when they went and asked, the yeah, province said, said no, 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 no. no. Um, they they did give some more gas tax as compensation, which is yeah. you know good to have, uh, and it's a way of uh, collecting money from motorists, right? Um, you know, but it, but it doesn't. The hotel tax was listed in there as as something that the city of Toronto allowed them, so they implemented a hotel tax. So that's a little stream of revenue. Right? Yeah. It's it's not that significant. I think it's like fifteen million dollars a year or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I just tell your listeners to like th- these numbers. I'm I'm trying to be accurate, but I, you know, the good thing about writing is that I get to look these <laughs> things up, and yeah. I haven't written about this stuff for months. Yeah. Uh, sure. These particular issues for months or many months. So, mm-hmm. if I'm off, forgive me. Go yeah. check it before you <laughs> cite it anywhere. Or, uh, but um, b- but I mean, yeah. So I mean, th- they're trying to cobble together a bunch of little things, right? To to uh, to help. But I mean, 
really the the big ones that that work in most places. Uh, the reason why sales taxes and income taxes are useful from the point of view of the city yeah. or the point of view of a government is because they're they're broad based, right? Which means everybody pays them, yeah. uh, and and so uh, th- that means you know you don't need to collect that much from each person mm. to wind up with quite a lot of with money. The, yeah. uh, whereas something like even the vehicle registration tax. Uh, I mean, I didn't find I, I'm a motorist. I I register a vehicle. But I didn't find the sixty dollars like that big of a burden compared to the other costs I pay sure. for my car and for my whatever insurance gas. Um, yeah, but but you need to you know collect. Uh, I mean, you're not collecting that much money. No, because you know, like, there's only so many people. I yeah. mean, some people like that vehicle registration tax because the more cars you had, the more you paid. So if you're if you're like ah. rich enough that you have like six cars in your garage because yeah. you collect old vintage cars, you, you'd be paying much more. Whereas if you're like uh, a working class family where you and your wife and your four kids all share one car, mm-hmm. uh, you know you're paying less. And if you don't have a car, you don't pay you at don't all. Pay at all. Yeah, but anyhow, so that like that's that debate's not coming back. That was so no. politically toxic that nobody's gonna no propose going bringing to. it back quite yet. No. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the city needs to figure out is is how to how to fund the things that it wants and needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and whether that is uh, efficient transit, you know, efficient way of moving people around. Um, you know, whether that is ensuring that you know no one's left out when it's minus thirty outside. Um, you know, whether it's things like, you know, we get cool things that, uh, you know, you went to the opening of the Bentway. Yeah, um, the Bentway's uh, dynamite yeah. new park. It's going to be, especially. You know, and we're talking about uh, the rail deck. We're talking, mm. you know, th- you know, parks are very important, Yeah. Uh, you know, to the city. And, yes, they they need money to, to, to fund these things. Um, I You know, we're, we, we've been here almost an hour. Um, I just want to, some rapid fire stuff I sure. want to ask you. Yeah. But we do have a municipal election coming. Yes. And I would love to get you back in here uh, Dur- late summer, early fall yeah, to, yeah, sure. to talk that would about. Be great. Uh, that would be great. But a, f- a few things. Um, Sam the Record Man. Yeah. The sign. You know, when, when it first left, you know, when Ryerson bought the property um, and, and it left, there was a big brouhaha. Like, keep the sign somewhere. After a while, it was like, I couldn't care less about that sign. <laughs> and now it is, I don't know how many stories up. Yeah, uh, it's up in, on top of that building at, at Victoria. I, I yeah. think it actually looks nice up there at night. I think as the Young and Dundas continues to evolve, it'll look even better. But, I mean, yeah. I'm glad it's back up there. I think, though, I mean, the thing is, really, Ryerson, like, screwed people, right? They, they, they promised the to put it right. back where it was. Yeah. And then they designed a building that made it absolutely Impossible. absurd to think that you would put it up yeah. there, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, the, the backup that was in the contract was that they put it on the Jorgensen Hall or whatever they call it now, the big gray building that's right next door. They should have just okay. put it on there. Yeah. But again, they, they didn't. And, and yeah. so that you know, there's a city-owned building where it's now uh, overlooking Dundas Square. But, you know, Young and Dundas Square is a place of bright lights anyway. Yeah. Uh, when they first put it back up there too it's like it's kind of see-through in the daytime and it was like what the hell is this right, <laughs> uh, right. but it never looked like much during the day because sure. the, when it's not lit but up it was so you close get to the, it was like right yeah. there at the street level yeah but know? but i mean i think i think things like that are you don't want to turn the entire city into a museum but i like having 
little Easter eggs planted here and there that can be mm. reminders of what used to be here, like the city that was. And I think we want them from every area. And, and yeah. you know, every, some people talk, I wrote about this recently, but some people talk about like, oh, all the aging hippies who remember Sam the Wrecker Man. <laughs> and it's fine. There are some aging hippies who remember it. Yeah. But you know what I like is like, if I take my kids there, they're going to ask me, what's that all about, what the heck right? Is and you get to say, ah, this is what this used to be, yeah. right? The same with they're going to put the Honest Ed's bat sign on the side of the the back of the Ed Mervish Theater, which is probably a good place for it, right? Yeah. Uh, but again, like, there's no longer a store there, but people say, who's Honest Ed? And there's a story to tell. And I sure. and I think it's not shouldn't all be neon signs, mm-hmm. right? You want uh, the faces of old buildings, right? Like... Uh, it, you go to the Loblaws at Carl, where Maple Leaf Gardens used to be, and they have a red dot where Center Ice mm-hmm. used to be. And yeah, again, it's one that, of those yeah. things that's, it's like a little reminder. You see it there and you think, yeah. oh yeah, Gordy Howe stood right here and <laughs> faced off, right? Like, yeah. or, or you tell your kids about that, or you, yeah. you know, or you go home and look it up, right? If you don't know, because like, if you're, you haven't been here that long, or, or sure. you, you, you don't have personal memories of this, you, what the hell is with that red dot yeah. in the Loblaws? And it's like, Oh, then you learn a little bit about the history of the city. You yeah. find out what we are, right? So, there is something to be yeah. said about sort of keeping some of this old architecture. You know, mm. you wrote about it. You know, we're the Hockey Hall of Fame. You know, it's in that old building. Uh, Air Canada Centre sort of kept the uh, the the edifice of of, of that yeah. old building as well. You know, there's something to be said about keeping old architecture, these old buildings that there's nothing wrong with them. They just have a different use now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and that's what I, I think, you know, you don't have to turn every single one into a museum. I like it, actually, when, sure. when the new use goes in, right? Mm. Uh, it, people complain about what they call facadism, which is where you, you destroy a heritage building, but you keep the facade. Ah. But I think, something I think sometimes yeah. having the facade there, it's just like, it's like uh, you, you, this, I got this scar on my forehead that reminds me of what happened yes. when I got it, right? It's like, like... You've got layers there, right? Yeah. Layers of the city built on top of each other. And I think actually that, that can be healthy in a lot of respects. I, yeah. I'm all for really preserving heritage buildings in some cases. But sure. I like adaptive reuse where you've still got the same building, but you've upgraded it and modernized it. And it's still, it's still part of the city. It's still being used every yeah. day. That's, that's way better than a, a Casa Loma, God bless it. Yeah. It's like you, you go and walk around and you see this house this guy built you know, and went bankrupt, and yeah. it's like, it's not being used for, for anything except observing the past. Yeah. Whereas, uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame is today st- still a building that's in use for uh, current purpose, for right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, four hundred one Richmond Street, that building there was in the news uh, quite mm. a while ago in terms of this this tax issue. Yeah. Um, what has come of that? Do you do you know? Yeah, the province changed the rules uh, to allow the city to create a new tax category for creative or nonprofit yeah. uh, artistic uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city has done that. I think uh, built particular buildings will have to apply to be recognized as that use, but then they mm-hmm. get put into a separate property tax category yeah. uh, where they're taxed at a lower rate or the taxes change at a different pace. Um, and and it, it seems like the... The ways that that was threatening 401 Richmond and other buildings like that, mm-hmm. um, uh, th- this is a solution. So yeah. it's a good news story is that it, yeah. it got solved for those people. Um, your former colleague, Desmond Cole. Yeah. Um, there's been chatter that he may or may not run for mayor. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? He's thinking about it. Um, 
I, I'm friends with Desmond, first of all, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I think he's an important voice in the city. Mm -hmm. I asked him, I was the, one of the first people to ask him if he was going to run for mayor yeah. publicly, and, and he told me he's thinking about it. Yeah. I think he should think about it. I think he should think carefully about yeah. it. I think um, that what we're going to wind up, what, what, what we know we're getting for sure right now is John Tory and Doug Ford, right? Yeah. And I think... Uh, I think John Tory is an incrementalist centrist, or he sees himself that way, and he wants to be in the middle of whatever spectrum you've got, right? Mm. Uh, and even if John Tory were to win re-election, uh, progressives would be better off if there was somebody dragging him to the left in the race, right? I believe uh, Threatening so. him from the left. Yeah. Um, I think also, though, that there's a window there. I think there's a... Uh, I think people... People plan, think these elections are already run in their heads, right? It's like upsets happen all the time in sports, but they happen all the time in... Look at Montreal. In a, in, look at... Donald Trump is the president Jeez. of the United <laughs> States, right? But not only that, before Donald... Uh, in the last election, Hillary Clinton was supposed to be a shoe-in, right? Oh, yeah. In the election before that, Hillary Clinton was supposed to be a shoe-in. And, and, and Barack Obama, the, the open election before that, Barack Obama... Yeah, yeah. Uh, came out of nowhere. He wasn't supposed to be able to no. win, right? Um, in, in the last race here in Toronto, Olivia Chow was, was walking to become mayor, right? Yeah, a year yeah. before the election, it was going to be a, a, just, just Chow, just Olivia yeah. Chow, right? When Rob Ford won, everybody got out of the way because George Smitherman machine was just going to roll over everybody, right? Even John Tory decided not to run. Karen Stintz decided not to run. George Smitherman was this unstoppable juggernaut. And then yeah. Rob Ford beat him, right? It's like... the. Upsets happen, right? Look at the and look at the mayor of Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, Justin Trudeau is prime minister, which now seems Third just the most predictable in, yeah. in thing in the world. It's the Liberal Party. He's the son of a prime minister. How could he not be prime minister? But yeah. it, it's like. I, I, one year before the not going into the campaign, he was in third place in public opinion polls. Right, yeah. you don't know what's going to happen, and I think there's a lot of people in the city who want a bigger, bolder vision for the city. The kind of thing that Desmond Cole uh, says we need, yeah. uh, who who also are really sensitive to the ways that the city is unjust to some people, mm -hmm. um, like racial justice, but also social justice. Uh, I think Desmond is really strong on those issues. Now, I think Desmond would have some work to do to, to broaden his coalition and to convince... Uh, average voters, mainstream voters, first of all, to bring a lot of new voters into the system and actually get them out to vote, yeah. but also to convince uh, a, a big part of the existing progressive core of the city uh, that he's the guy to actually carry that torch into City Hall and implement it, mm -hmm. right? It's like there's a management job to do there yes. once you're there. There's a... and I, But I mean, I think... I think he'd be a really interesting candidate. Mm. I think, uh, like, like I, 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 I think he should consider carefully consider it. Yeah. I mean, and I would never tell somebody they should run or not run, right? I mean, and everybody's decision depends on who they're up against, right? But sure, the interesting thing is you start asking around for like, well, obviously somebody's got to run, right? And uh, from the from the left, and and there's nobody really lining up to run. Maybe no. since the last time I made my periodic canvas you know th there's been more developments i don't know maybe this yeah. homelessness crisis will have twigged some people to something different but uh but you know there, there were even s some high profile people uh you know looking around for somebody they could fundraise for and organize mm -hmm. for and not finding anyone yeah. right
Jennifer Kiesmatt's name hasn't come up recently. Although it no, seemed... I mean she's pretty flatly denied that she has yeah, any interest in running. No. She basically has endorsed John Tory, from what I understand. Like oh, I don't, okay. I don't. Um... <clears throat> who was that? There was this. There was that young Toronto councillor who went to Montreal. Did he go to Montreal or London? There was that young guy. He got caught in the scandal. He was cheating on his wife. Adam Jambroni. Y- yes. Mm. There was talk of him once coming back to Toronto. What, what, yeah, I don't know if that yeah? would work out All for right. him. <laughs> 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 he's running the subway in Brooklyn now. Or no, he's running the streetcars in Brooklyn now. Is so. that what he's doing? Yeah, he's okay. The streetcar I knew he project down in New York Transit. City that uh, that uh, he's in charge of implementing. Your favorite thing about Toronto? Oh man. Well, my family. <laughs> Can we all come visit your family? I mean, I mean, like if there was, if somebody were coming, yeah. you know, you get family that came from out of town, and they asked you, "Where's the one place I need to go and see?" Does it need to be? Oh boy, the, the one Center, place I need to go know? and see. Like, what's the um, one place where they said, "Show me what Toronto is," and you have to take them to one thing, one see, place, one neighborhood? I don't know. If, if I. It doesn't quite do it, right? Okay. But I think you could do worse than just riding a Queen Streetcar from one end to the other. Oh. Um, and, I mean, getting off at, sure. e- everywhere along the way, right? Uh, be- because I think you see a lot of the city that way, from the beaches in the East End uh, right through the financial core, yeah. Leslieville, uh, Queen West, mm. Parkdale, uh, Mimico, Long Branch, right? There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of different parts of the city there. But you got to... You gotta kind of keep getting off the streetcar to see the sure. different neighborhoods. But if you were looking for the quick tour, yeah, I think actually you, you could do worse than that. Um, I also, though, I mean, I love Bluffers Park, but okay. that's not. It, it's almost though because it feels like a vacation spot. It feels like you're yeah. going to a different uh, city. Like looking, standing down there, and you look one way, and there's the lake, right? Yeah. Which might as well be an ocean. It's so. Sure. vast and beautiful and then you turn around and these white sort of cliffs. geometric cliffs are just right there yeah um you feel a, a thousand years miles away it from the city it doesn't like feel like yeah i mean similar things happen with the toronto islands right like the mm. the ferry ride over to the toronto islands and the ferry ride back but also the exploring the islands themselves are just like kind of magical That's but so you know like what i like to do when i go to other cities yeah is just walk around right like and yes and that's what I love doing in Toronto too. Um, and and like, if if when I do have people visit here, me here and want to see it, like I, I take them walking across Queen Queen Street through downtown up to Kensington Market through the Annex, right? Um, out around my neighborhood in the Junction, down to High Park, Sunnyside Beach. Um, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult because there's actually quite a lot of the city that I love in Scarborough. Uh, mm. But you kind of got to drive around a bit That's because so the, the things to love, uh, both the natural features like Bluffers Park, but also the places you want to go, like the great restaurants, or mm. you, you kind of got to drive to them. Um, if you're walking, you, you need days, not hours, it's right? So <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. Sorry, I don't. I, it's a cop out because you no, ask, like, what's the one place I love? What's the one place? Yeah. But I have such a hard time. Yeah. Uh, Naming one place. No, this right? has been awesome. Yeah. You've given me some ideas of what to do with visitors the next time. <laughs> Ed, thanks so much for coming by. Really appreciate hey, it. Thank you so much for having me, and I'd love to come by again sometime.
Here 